This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chettenden. My guest today is Matt Ray, Interim Superintendent, Omaha Public Schools. After 27 years with the Omaha Public Schools District, Matt Ray began serving as the Interim Superintendent in July 2023. He began his career as a student teacher at Ashland Park Robbins Elementary. Ray has also worked as a district-wide substitute teacher and in various administrative roles, most recently Deputy Superintendent. Ray earned two bachelor's degrees from the University of Nebraska-Omaha, one in criminal justice and a second in elementary education. He earned a Master of Science in Educational Administration from UNO in 2000 and his Educational Specialist from the University of Nebraska at Kearney in 2020. Ray and his wife are the parents of three graduates of Omaha Public Schools. Matt Ray, welcome to Lives. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for allowing me to be here. I wanted to start with an almost absurdly wide invitation, really. It's not even a question. You are now leading Omar Public School District, but I want you for a moment to imagine that you have the, a blank slate to create a system of education. Given a blank slate, what would you do in creating a system of education? I, I think it's, it's about the why, clarifying the why and what the focus is. I think when an organization gets so big, we try to do so much. So I think it would be starting with what is our primary goal? Now, there's so much we could focus on, literacy, numeracy, so many things. But I think starting off with saying our focus is literacy. We want everybody to be here, everybody be there. Um, I think that would be where I would start. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of structures, there's systems that support an organization that's big that would come about naturally. Um, but I think it would be that, that starting of where should our focus be and what are we willing to let go of? Contextually, what are some of the contextual issues that are top of mind when uh, you think about the Omaha Public School District? There's a lot of things that, you know, when you, when you lay down at night, run through your head um, and things that you, you're, you're wanting to fix or you're wanting to problem solve. And I have a notebook on the, the side of my table just to write it down so I can keep, keep moving or eventually go to sleep. But I think the biggest thing um, right now is the impact of staffing or the lack of staffing. Um, and, and maybe as an organization accepting or getting people to accept that that's the reality and not thinking or waiting for next year because next year is necessarily going to be better or that there's 17 people at TAC in a room that we just didn't hire. You know, it's, it's getting the organization, and I think we're getting there, um, but the organization to realize this is the reality and we have to work within the means that we have. It feels like the challenge around workforce is one that is being faced by pretty much every institution across the country. I'm sure there are many smart people that can articulate reasons why. I'm sure the pandemic is a part of that recalibration of people's lives, that sort of thing. And whether you're 
public, private, or governmental, you are facing this issue of, of workforce. A feature, it seems to me, and maybe this is just media representation, but a feature for education is this formally cuddly, warm image of the teacher as someone that we as a community looked up to, admired, they care for our kids, they grow our children into the adults that we want them to be. And, and there's something sentimental about that. And I think a lot of public servants now face a different landscape, one of demonization or um, almost paranoia about their role in indoctrinating our children. I, I don't know if that is showing up in the morale of the thousands of people that you work with. No, oh, it abs absolutely is. And, and staffing is, of course, as you mentioned, not unique to public schools or the Omaha public schools. I think the difference is we still try to provide everything. So we don't have the option of saying, we don't have a wait staff, so we're going to change our hours. Or we no longer have sweet potato fries, we're taking them off the menu. Um, we are still trying to provide everything that we did with the full staff. So, and that we should still be, right? We should still be educating kids. Um, it's so important, but what can we as an organization pull off the menu that we don't necessarily have the luxury of doing? And that's the hard part, you know, to still offer everything. If you lose a Latin teacher at one school, um, that's hard for that one school or for those 160 kids that took Latin. But if you don't have a Latin teacher, you don't have a Latin teacher and you have to figure out how. Um, but to your point, I think, you know, we counted on a workforce. And I've said this a couple of times. I don't know how many people like that this this notion, but we counted on a workforce that did it for the mitzvah, the good deed. You know, we, we built a workforce that said for so long. I didn't go into teaching for the money. I went into the, the into teaching because I love kids, which is true, which is great, which is important. But what we're what we're seeing is as generations go in and out of the field, the the pressure on teaching becomes harder. The mitzvah is good, but I also want to be paid and recognized for the work. And during during COVID, we we raised teachers to this hero status, which is right. I'm, I'm not against it. But then almost immediately after COVID, the hero status went away and you're, you're not doing what you should be doing. You're, you're teaching the wrong stuff or you're indoctrinating. And I think those combination of things have really impacted the workforce. Um, you know, you see things that have happened where, you know, people want teachers to post a month's worth of lesson plans publicly. All that stuff has an impact. Um, and it's all connected to staffing. Your class size gets bigger, your caseload case gets bigger. And when you feel the loss of love or the appreciation, it's harder. You, in this context, need to work collaboratively, harmoniously with a teachers' union too. And I, I don't know if this is another contextual shift for you, given that you've assumed this leadership position for the, the whole organization. Um, I wonder if you would mind speaking a little bit to how you go about nurturing the kind of relationship that every leader needs with their you know, workforce union so that there's um, something harmonious and mutually productive. I believe I have a really good relationship with the, the union president for um, the teachers union president. We have very good, open, honest conversations. Um, I realize where she's coming from representing a large group. And I believe she realizes where I'm at representing a larger organization. We've gone to some conferences together that, that we think have value. Um, we talk pretty regularly. 
She's pretty open. I'm pretty open. There's no immediate tension between us. We both agree that our success is connected. The success of the teachers is connected to the success of the school district. We won't always agree on every detail, but at this very moment, we have a very good relationship and, and being honest with the things we're both facing. My suspicion is that after workforce would be the topic of money. And I think it's really hard to be the person that uh, we'll talk about your career and you've evolved over a long period of time into this role. But now the buck, as it were, stops with you in terms of the organization needs financing to do what it needs to do for the thousands of children in our community. So what are some of the monetary challenges and, and dare I say, opportunities too? for you to take OPS to, you know, its next chapter? Well, you know, the, the staffing shortage is part of it because when you're 78% of your budget, 80% of your budget is people and you're short people, you have money. So you have extra, extra money or, or budgeted money that's not being spent. And we hope that that money will be spent on people. So at the moment, that shortage of staffing has allowed us to do some things that we've wanted to do in the past. You know, we're paying people more for loss of plan time, our extra duty, increasing uh, summer school rates for staff that works. So we're in this position to do some things because we have that money that we haven't in the past. Long term, the money piece will be interesting because of the large facility base that we have. We did a facility study that uh, we need $2 billion of renovation to the district within the next 20 years. $2 billion. Now, that's 20 years, but still, that's a lot of money. And maintaining, you know, over, what, 95 campuses and 95 buildings, it's a huge organization. Um, so that long term uh, is probably more concerning than the immediate. Also, with um, some things with our own pension, you know, the, the Omaha Public Schools has its own pension at some point in the next few years, the school district will be required to put an additional $50 million, $50 million into pension. It's an important investment. It's a required investment. It's my pension. It's the teacher's pension. It's, uh, it's important, but that all connects to the, that need for financial support. It's, it's an interesting problem to have, right, that you have this extra money because you don't have people, um, but we all want the people rather than the, extra, the, the unspent money. There's an interesting tension here between the public and private um, and, and how that translates into public-private investment. One facet of that is the idea behind vouchers, voucher systems about charter schools or privately funded schools. How do you see those trends perhaps impacting what you think about the school district for the next several years? I think it's, uh, it's very important for the Omaha Public Schools to continue to show improvement and to acknowledge those forces that are outside that maybe not necessarily want us to fail, but are looking for us to fail so they have an opportunity to do something else. So to get the organization to understand the pressure or the importance, maybe pressure is not the right word, but the importance of doing better as an organization and acknowledging when we fall short and focusing on things that have the biggest impact. Those external things are so important. And that's the, the hard part of leadership is how much do you share that with the organization rather than protect the organization from it? You know, I'll deal with this, you deal with that. But I, I've, 
tried to inform principals and uh, those people impacted that this is what's going on. You need to know the landscape. And our kids have to do better and we have to do better with them. We owe them that. Uh, of course, I was thinking a little bit about funding at a more macro level. But now I'm realizing, of course, that each student, each person, each staff member uh, shows up at school each time that they're engaging with OPS and they bring their own financial challenges with them. And I, I, I think I want to ask you in a second about misperceptions and, and maybe some stereotypes, but there are pockets of our community that, that really have been underfunded, disinvested, um, I dare I say in some cases oppressed and other parts of our communities that have been elevated um, in some way in, in ways that perhaps don't seem quite fair. So what is happening in the school district in terms of how students show up with disparate uh, backgrounds and, and levels of support in their own sort of neighborhood lives and family lives? And it, it, it's, it's an unfortunate, to your point, it's not new. I mean, this is something that the Omaha Public Schools has probably been dealing with since it started 170 years ago or whatever it is. Um, and, and really identifying what we're working to do better is identify those things that are happening at individual schools. So what is happening at an individual school and what resources are available to wrap around that school versus a district perspective that every school has to have one of these or two of these. So if school A has four community groups, but school B doesn't that are supporting families. How do we realign that so we're getting supports in those schools that are need, need them? You know, it's been... It's been interesting because COVID has highlighted or, or amplified this in society, and it, it seemed to be more important when it impacted more people. And the, the issue of food insecurities has been an issue in the Omaha Public Schools and parts of the Omaha Public Schools for generations. Um, but when it was amplified with um, COVID, it, it seemed to have more interest, broader interest. Um, you know, the mental health discussion is not a new issue, but since it seems to impact other groups in a bigger group, it now has a more of a focus. And, and maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay because then you're focusing more on it and there's a bigger focus on it. Uh, but our community is, is generally resilient because they've experienced these things before. But as a school district, we also have to be aware of what our charge is and how do we get those things maybe outside of school to support kids when they come in. And, and that's just been an interesting discussion in a few months of how do we see partnerships? How do we see organizations um, and their connection to schools? Are there, are there other lingering effects of the pandemic that you're witnessing that have an impact on the school districts that perhaps we haven't already talked about? No, I don't think there's any, um, you know, there's, there's so many things connected to those two years. Um, you know, if you think of the, the graduating class this year would have started their high school career virtually. My own son graduated during COVID virtually. You know, it's, so there's all this impact that you have, but as an organization trying to not make it the excuse, but understanding the why and understanding what, how much more work we have to do. You know, I think there's things that we've done as an organization. I think of iPads. You know, we, we went one-to-one -one during COVID. And we 
we basically switch from a common sense approach to screen time within a month. Then we handed everybody iPads and said, well, now we want you on screens. And it was necessary and important. But then also now looking at how did that approach or how is that continued approach impacting what's happening in classrooms or even at, happening at home? The year prior, the start of the school year, we had this approach of everybody has to take their iPads home because we, that model was built on the idea that we might be closing schools because of the pandemic. So you had to take your iPad home. But then as we looked at it, well, I looked at it, is it necessary to send your iPad home? There has to be a reason. You just don't send an iPad home to send an iPad home. And how that iPad being at home impacts what happens once a student gets home. Because we don't want them on their iPad for four hours. Um, we don't want them taking their iPad to the grocery store. And so there's some of that stuff that we're, we have to look at to see if we need to roll back or we you know, do differently because of the pandemic. You have spent a long time with the school district in various capacities. And so I want to get back a little bit to these forces that, that shaped how you showed up in these various phases. And, and, and to do this, I've got to jump back to the beginning, which is my invitation to say, tell me about your childhood. I never, as a kid, never thought, you know, I'm going to be this. You know, I never had this vision of I always wanted to be something. And so it depended on the year, it depended on the day, it depended on the circumstances. There was this crazy time where I thought I'd be a writer because um, I love to read, so I should write. You know, you take these interest surveys as a freshman in high school, and I did this interest survey, and it came out that I should be in law enforcement. And so that's where the criminal justice stuff came in. And um, there was this job in this interest survey is, was a um, fire watch with the National Park Service. And I remember researching it because you had to go to the library. You couldn't Google it. And there was a person in this cabin on the side of the mountain up high with their whole job was to watch for fires. And that is amazing. You don't have to interact with people. You just watch fires. And so it, for most of my high school career, that's, the, that's where I thought I would end up. And part of that was you needed some sort of criminal justice or law enforcement to be a park ranger. Um, so I went to college, UNO, to be a fire marshal, fire watch. Um, and so um, I took some criminal justice classes, of course, as part of that, that degree. And I took a trip to London to study the criminal justice system. And on that trip was a person uh, that would uh, I really connected with. And uh, we became friends. And then 11 months later, we married. It, it was kind of this click that I didn't have to be alone, that I didn't have to watch for fires, that there were other things in my future. And I thank her for that. So I finished my criminal justice degree, but also as I was finishing my criminal justice degree, uh, my second thought was always elementary education. I thought I could do that and it, it would enjoy that. It wasn't for the money. It was for the mitzvah. <laughs> so uh, I went into elementary education. I completed my degree in criminal justice, then went into elementary education. And then um, from there, uh, student taught in the Omaha Public Schools, substitute taught. And uh, my whole career has been in the Omaha Public Schools. There was a small time of Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, but that was three weeks. I don't really put that on a resume anymore. Are there experiences from your own childhood and uh, you know, youth as a, a college student 
that have shaped how you see the education system as an adult professional in this field? There's, you know, there's probably a lot of little things that, that make you who you are. This is such a silly story, but I remember one time uh, as a, it was in second grade, that, you know, the teacher supervises you as you go into the, the restroom to make sure there's no hijinks. And I picked up paper towels that were on the floor and threw them away. And the teacher gave me a basket of chocolate for doing something. And, and it hit me. If, if I was so excited. Like, it seemed very logical to me that you pick up the paper towels. Like, but I was so excited that I got this, this chocolate. But that from that moment, it, it was this idea of, you know, you do the right thing. And you don't always get chocolate. And you shouldn't do it because of the chocolate, right? But this impact this teacher had on recognizing doing the right thing. And that's guided me so much of, I believe I know the difference between right and wrong. And that, that rightness or doing the right thing has guided me so much of, of how I view my work in the Omapo schools and how I interact with people. You know, I've had teachers in my, that have made great impact. Um, I also, you know, I struggled. Uh, my parents went through a divorce when elementary school, and, and this would have been the 70s, so divorce was, you know, a big thing. And how important counselors were in that effort and how important staff was in, in recognizing that something was going on as well. Um, I had a lot of anxiety in school to the point that at some points in my career, I wouldn't sharpen my pencil because the idea that, well, if I get to sharpen my pencil, I'll fall. People will look at me. I'll laugh. They'll laugh at me. You know, so just, just that idea of how people experience schools and, and the importance of adults in that part of it is huge. And not even wanting to participate in things because of that anxiety or, or shying away from exploration because of it and, and trying to make sure my own kids and the kids that I'm now responsible for have opportunities and do things and participate. You've mentioned a few times the idea of mitzvah as uh, a good cause, expressions of calling and behavior. So clearly there's some reference point to a cultural tradition as well as a religious one. And I'm just curious about your faith practice and perhaps how that informs your approach to the work without necessarily sort of dictating your work. You know, my, my first experience with religion, I, I remember this so vividly, is my uh, aunt was getting married in Lake Tahoe at this beautiful, beautiful church. And the church, the way it was set, it was the winter. Uh, it looked out on Lake Tahoe. It was the most gorgeous, godly thing. If there was a question or you wondered about God, this was the godly thing. And it was this amazing, beautiful thing. And I don't know how old I was. I'm, say, seven, eight. Um, I remember my brother was in the wedding, and he got a racetrack for participating in the wedding, and I, didn't, I do remember that. But this, just remembering how this, this very beautiful thing happened, and as we're, we're getting out of the parking lot, I just remember this very, very vividly. Um, two people kind of got in a fender bender, and they were swearing and cussing and the hatred for each other during this fender bender. And I remember very vividly thinking, what the heck? We just left this amazing thing, and it just shifted so quickly. And that's where I... I began to wonder about religion and, and organize religion at the ripe age of seven, which explains the anxiety probably. So it, it, religion was never a big part of, of my life. But I, when I met my wife, Shana, I have to give her so much credit for who I am as an adult. 
Um, she's Jewish. And um, there was no pressure to convert. There was no brush, pressure to be something I wasn't. But as I learned more, uh, as I participated more, it became very important. So I converted. I, I made a conscious, deliberate effort to convert before we had our first child. And knowing how important it was to raise our children in some sort of core value that we both shared um, was very important to me. And it's been it's been interesting being Jewish as part of who I am. It doesn't it doesn't identify me, uh, but it's been interesting because it, some people use it as an identifier for me, and I'm sure that's with everybody, right? But that that idea of making the world a better place is so important, and doing good deeds and and not needing to stand up and say, I did a good deed. I, I believe it's no longer a good deed if you have to tell people. But it, it really frames kind of how I approach the world. In uh, a time, it would seem a repeated, continuous time of conflict, but also a localized time where it feels more prominent, the, the need to exhort people just to be kind, be nice, in the face of what feels like an amplification of bad manners and rudeness and, dare I say, hatred and violence too. I have heard you reference the idea of shalom as a philosophy to, to guide you, but also to guide how you approach organizational life and work without making assumptions about what that word means and the philosophy of that, could you talk a little bit more about what, what that says and means to you? It, this feels like you almost set me up for this because uh, I have in my office this yard, uh, yarn art that uh, my kids made in preschool, and it's Shalom. And it's on this, this piece. It's really hard to read because their yarn art wasn't you know, high caliber in preschool, but it does say Shalom. And it's, it's this idea of peace. You know, it's this idea of calmness. It's this, this idea of how you lead. And it doesn't, it's not always, it's, you know, there's, there's times where I'm probably not very peaceful. Um, but it's, it's, it's this idea of calmness and peace and, and how we treat others. Um, and there will always be those that, that will probably say, well, he's not very calm. He's not very peaceful, but it, it's a goal. Um, you know, calm and peace are, should be how it operates. And, and I feel this way with this school year. And, and I understand that, that sometimes leaders are insulated from so many things, but it, there's feels like a calmness within the Omaha public schools. Um, when people ask me well, how things are going, I'm like, fine, you know, calm. And, and I think that's good. You've mentioned your wife, Shana. Uh, you've also talked about how you came to meet, which was through this uh, criminal justice program. She, I, I know, has had a long and, depending on how we judge success, but she, she's risen the ranks in the Omaha Police Department and assumed positions of um, a prominence and, and real impact in the community, both in her professional work, but also her volunteer work connected with, with that role. How, has, how have her experiences, perhaps maybe even at the sharp end of dealing with children, youth, and adults in a criminal justice sense. When you talk and you share what's happening with your lives and, and uh, you know, yourselves, how has that informed your work with the school district? Well, first, she, she's my hero. I believe if it wasn't for Shana, I'd still be in a Papasan chair in my mother's basement 
Um, she motivates me. She kicks me. She pushes me. She, um, when this interim role came up, she was so crucial in saying, do it. You know, why wouldn't you? You know, and there's, there's times she's completely retired now. So she's done. She is, is such a good sounding board for me and my experiences in the district with people. And she knows a lot of the work crosses or the, the people cross or the organizations or the partners or the community cross in, in her work in the community to help me kind of ground some of the things that were happening or did happen, even from a historical perspective in, in parts of the city. I mean, she, she was so active in communities and, and policing within communities and connecting with people. Um, that was absolutely her strength that I can still call her today and say, hey, this is something. And she'll say, have you talked to this person? Have you thought of this person? But it's, it's an absolute great partnership in this effort. I couldn't do it without her, really. So you've worked with four superintendents in your tenure over 27 years. I'm curious what you have learned from those experiences that you are looking to perpetuate. All four are so different in the way they led. I'm very aware of, from working with four different superintendents, the pressure that it puts on people individually, um, not just the work pressure, but the personal uh, nature of it. So trying to figure out how that would impact me or not impact me or change me as an individual or change who I am. Because if, if something changes that made me successful, I have concerns about it. And I don't, the, the pressure of the job, the pressure of all that happens and um, changes people. And it can be very lonely. And so I'm very aware of that and trying to figure out how I can adjust to it because I don't want that. But all of them, I, I've taken things that, that are successful, that they've done well, and try to figure out how I can, you know, use it or not use it, depending on what the situation is. Um, but my time with all four of those superintendents were, were very informative and, and took things away from all of them. You know, and, and I had le different levels of jobs uh, throughout those superintendencies. And most of my time, most connected would be that time with Dr. Logan, of course. But so much of, of watching people lead and learning from them and seeing their foibles um, and their successes has been really helpful. At this moment in time, as we record, you are the interim superintendent. So that's the role you fulfill. Is it, I don't know, it gives you a sense of permission and openness? Or does it feel frustrating that perhaps in some ways you are extending Dr. Logan's superintendency and perhaps you don't have a free reign? Or do you feel as if you are able to chart your own course and, and chart the course for OPS independent of the past? So, you know, part of the, the role of the interim is to maintain, you know, that just by the nature of the title, the, the whole idea with, with this interim year was to give the Board of Education an opportunity to go through the process um, to hire a superintendent. And I've seen people in interim roles who try to reshape the organization in their image or reorg it, name people to positions or, or do some major changes. And that's just not the role of the interim. That being said, I don't stop planning for the future. So we didn't as an organization ever say, well, let's wait. Let's wait to see what happens next year. 
Um, and in some cases, we've I've tried to kick people a little bit to say we can't wait for this. It's too important. If if the next superintendent wants to change it, uh, but we can't stall. The work's too important to say, well, let's wait another year. So we keep moving. We keep moving. We're planning for next school year, but we're not in. A, we're not pigeonholing anything to that somebody can't back out of if somebody has a different vision. But you know, our our, our focus still is on instruction. You know, with things that are happening in the classroom, and I, the board has been very supportive of the things that I've done um, and are working towards. I'm worried this is going to come across as a gotcha question because I know you've been asked this before, not least by a student. We were just chatting about this right. off air. So answer this or, or not, um, as you like. Do you have an interest in being the superintendent? So this year um, has been probably the best year of my 27 years in this interim role. I've enjoyed it. Um, I sleep less. And there's always this kind of this heavy blanket on you because of all the things that are happening. But it's been my favorite year. I absolutely have an interest. But the decision to do so has not been made yet. And it would be a decision that I would make with Shana. I can tell you what she'd say. But I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And, and I'm, I'm not doing it in the sense to people describe it. Well, you have a inter- year of interview. No, I'm not. I'm not using this to further myself or to have 12 people show up at a board meeting and advocate for Matt Ray. That's not who I am. I'm doing the job. Um, Have I made some mistakes? Absolutely. I stopped writing them down, but I'm really having fun. And I'm really enjoying the going to things and seeing kids do the great things that they're doing in schools. Um, I feel strongly we're we're moving in the right direction. We've got great people in great positions. And um, it's just so important that we're successful. A remark you made off air to me uh, is, is staying with me. And it was about this idea that you are now, it's still surprising you're the focus of attention that people want to talk to you. And I'm wondering about that. Is, is this, a, even surprisingly, a paradigm shift for you? Because you are now occupying a place of really exposed uh, public attention in our community. I mean, the school district is big in many terms, whether we're talking about people, how many lives it touches, the money that's involved, the scale of the infrastructure. It's very visible. So I am curious, is this a paradigm shift for you in terms of the visibility of your role and you as a human? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to go from somebody who struggled to go sharpen your pencil, you know, uh, out of the fear of tripping, to be, being in charge of the one of the largest employers in the state of Nebraska with almost a billion dollar budget and 7,000, 8,000 employees. Um, that's part of what keeps me up at night. And, and the idea of being up front always is, is a foreign concept to me because of so many years working behind the scenes and the idea that anybody would find anything I'd say is interesting. is just flummoxing to me still. Um, but I also know the importance of what I say and, and the importance of doing that. And I don't have a brand. I'm not promoting myself for something bigger. I never want it to be about me because there's so many other things going on. And sometimes organization gets lost, gets lost in the person that's running it rather than the work that's being done. 
I mean, I've, I've received some input that I need to talk more at places. I need to be more visible, but there's great people doing great things. And I don't always have to be the voice. That's where I'm at. You know, I, I, to this day, speaking to groups of people, I have this anxiety and I usually answer it with humor or uncomfortableness because that's a strategy I learned in elementary school, probably. But this this idea to be the voice and to be the front of everything still kind of hits me sometimes. Like, why would why would you want to sit with me for an hour to talk about me? That just it's it seems weird. Do you have a concept then of what a leader is and should be? Yes. <laughs> yes. Period. <laughs> You know, it's, it, it's, um, you know, seeing so many different leaders and so many different superintendents and so and through, not just in the Omapo schools, but working with superintendents throughout the, the, the city and, and running into them all over. It's, it's just interesting to see how people lead and how people, um, feel their role is I'm very comfortable being observant and watching and making decisions and not necessarily the need to talk just to talk is foreign to me. You know, the shalom, you know, trust, humor, all those things drive kind of who I am as a leader and, and trying to be relatable and practical to people so people can talk to me and um, to just some really small examples. So the, the superintendent's office used to have a, a, a film over the window so you couldn't see in. And I had them take the film off. And so my office is very open. If, if, if you want to come sit and watch me for eight hours, you could sit and watch me work for eight hours. And please don't. But this idea of, well, see, I'm open. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing going on behind closed doors. If you want to see the superintendent, the superintendent, you can literally see what I'm doing every day. I have to be aware of that as you get up and stretch um, but, uh, or you eat your lunch. But it, it's just these small things that are so important. What are you encountering in terms of what people are expecting of you now that you've assumed, you know, the peak of the hierarchy? It's, um, it's been interesting because I, I have relationships with people that I've known for 27 years. You know, there's people I've taught with. There's people I went to school with. Um, and they know me as Matt Ray, you know. And for some, it seems that transition of superintendent or interim superintendent Matt Ray it's, it's, it's interesting to watch. And it's, it's not that people are overly, they don't disregard me, but they, they remember me as the, you know, 22 year old teacher, or they remember me or they experience me as the person that, that were they carpooled with. Um, so there's this transition of those people that know me have known me for so long. And then the other part of the organization that doesn't. And it's been interesting to experience that. Generally speaking, you get more responsiveness for the people that are newer in the organization than those people that maybe have known me for 20 plus years. But overall, there's nothing that has really jumped out that that has changed because I know the I know people, I know the players, I know the process, I know what it means to start a school year off. I know what it means when you get into the middle of the school year. Um, I know the importance of building a calendar. I know board agendas. So it's nothing has really jumped out as people are asking much more than they used to. Maybe to build on that then a little bit, and maybe the answer is nothing much, but have you changed? Has this changed you? And perhaps 
how have you surprised even yourself? I, I think for me, what's what's been interesting this year is this this, and it's just not a school district thing. It's a country thing. I would argue is this this binary thinking that you're either for something or against it. You can't be in the middle somewhere. This idea that if if you go to a, a Republican lunch, you are automatically a Republican and you should be hated by X amount of people, um, or that if you if you invite the governor to something, you're pro-governor and anti-teacher, or you know this this binary approach that you're either for something or against something, maybe is something that I've probably in my head focused more on. Is how do you get the organization to not think of it's, it's either a yes or a no, that it's okay to be in the middle. Sometimes I catch myself focusing on the the very small things that that I can control. I mean, this sounds horrible, but. As an organization, we really struggle putting numbers on PowerPoint slides. And I know that seems small, but it's something I can control. And so the fact that it gets me so upset that we're still producing PowerPoint slides without numbers on it when it's so easy to fix. Um, but I find myself, oh, I can fix that. That's easier to address than some of the bigger things you're facing. And I think there's a lot of us in the organization that focus on those things that we can control and seem to avoid those bigger pictures, those bigger picture things. I have found myself a little bit being less patient and, and wanting quicker and, and faster resolution to things. If the superintendent emails you, you should probably respond. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's a reasonable expectation. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned having a notebook by your bed and it was a place, it was a repository really to extract from your head the concerns, the doubts, the ideas, and have them in a place so that you could then relax and go to sleep and awake in the morning and, and there would be this note of what was on your mind and maybe in your heart too. How are you practicing, given some of the pressures we've talked about, a, a regimen of care for yourself so that you do maintain a degree of you know, ability to you know, act in the world and do your job, but also to function uh, with well-being? I'm struggling with it. I, I don't have an answer to that. I haven't figured that part out yet. I don't have a hobby. I need to pick up a hobby. I love reading, but I tend to, when I start to read, fall asleep very quickly. So I, I don't know that I've figured that out yet. I haven't figured out, and I don't even know if, if work-life balance is a reasonable thing. Um, you know, the superintendency, like a lot of jobs, principalships and other, it's a lifestyle. Um, you know, people feel very comfortable approaching you no matter where you are on things. Uh, I had a contract delivered to my home um, by an organization. I don't know that I figured out that balance yet, or, you know, I, I don't work out. I don't, you know, typically if I get home, when I get home, I just want to sit for a minute. Um, I really love sleep, um, if that's a hobby, but um, I haven't figured that out yet. On the one hand, the way you've talked about your spouse, I have the impression that it's a supportive, nurturing relationship. So I can imagine that you would lean on that. But also you shared that your spouse is now fully retired, which means her life is recalibrated in many ways, which could then be a source of tension because you've assumed a higher pressure role that's 24-7. And stereotypically, she possibly has stepped into a, a, a different sense of how she lives her life. So I'm just curious, has, has this kind of reorientation had unexpected consequences? 
It's interesting. Somebody uh, recently asked her what it's like to be the superintendent's wife. And for someone who was the, a, a precinct captain for the Omaha Police Department, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the importance of her job, the, the success she had it, and then somebody saying, how does it feel to be the superintendent's wife? Was, it was an interesting question. And, and so we joked about it. She said, well, should I be doing something? Should I be having teas as the superintendent's wife? Like, what's my role? What should I be doing? I don't have dresses, cocktail dresses. What, what am I missing out on as the superintendent's wife? It's, it kind of comes and goes depending on what it is. You know, there's, there's weeks where I don't get home till seven or eight the whole week. Um, and that's just not fair to her. But she also keeps me going and every morning asks what she can do to help. And it, it's not that she's devoted her new retirement life to the superintendency of the Omaha Public Schools. But she's always been very supportive. Um, but I think she sometimes wonders what she's missing out on. Should she be doing something as the superintendent's wife? Um, You've charted this life within OPS as teacher, substitute teacher, various administrative roles, and, and now currently interim superintendent. How have those experiences shaped each other? And I'm curious if you know if you miss teaching. So, um, you know, I never thought when I started fifth grade teaching had to write the superintendent's names board name down on uh, the chalkboard or wherever it was that I'd be the superintendent of the Omaha Public Schools, interim or other. I never went into it thinking, "Boy, I want to lead this organization. I want to be responsible for all of it." And I, I sometimes wonder if you meet someone who says, I really want to be the superintendent, you should ask questions because there should be some doubt um, to be the superintendent. But it's, it's shaped, it's all so connected. It's, it's how I experienced the organization through what they directed me to do as a teacher, which is, is kind of funny because some of that stuff I had to do 22 years ago as a teacher, we were still expecting teachers to do. And so... I don't know how to distinguish it. You know, my, my experiences in various roles really allowed me to make connections and relationships with people in the organization that I still am connected to now. It allowed me to see the district as a, a big picture and see how it's all connected and the importance of it. And I think mostly it's, it's those relationships that I've made over the years. Um, and the people that when it was announced that I was an interim superintendent, that reached out that had been retired for 10 years or five years and, and congrats, congratulated me. Um, I think that's probably the most important part that I connected. Do you feel like you are living into your calling? Do, do you feel as if your life is embracing a, a sense of purpose that you were intended to, uh, to work at? I think I'm in the right place at the right time. I think it worked out really well for the organization and for me as an individual that this, I was the deputy superintendent, that I was ready to lead in this transition. I believe my role is to make things better and make the world a little bit better. Um, and it weighs on me sometimes thinking, 
in this year, which is a guaranteed interim year. I mean, nothing's guaranteed. I guess the board could change something, but I will be the interim superintendent for a year. And what changes can I make in an interim role that makes things better next year, makes things better for students next year, makes better th things better for the staff next year? Um, you know, I, th I thought my calling was to be a, a fire watch person. Um, so I don't, I, I'm in the right place at the right time. In her first year as superintendent, I interviewed on the show, uh, Dr. Logan. One of the questions I asked her was about her outside interests. And she volunteered at a hospice and it was a really heartbreaking and heartwarming story that she shared about the genesis of that particular volunteering role. So I want to ask you to share more with me about racing Fiats. I love Fiats. It's the little 500s. Um, and so Shana, for a birthday present, bought me an Abarth Fiat 500. And uh, um, I was able to uh, do a test drive. They, when you bought a Fiat, you could go to a test drive and they teach you how to drive it. They take you on the racetrack. They, they would put you in competitions. It was part of the promotion of Fiat's, which apparently didn't do real well because they're, you know, they're coming back though, by the way, Fiat is. Um, and so I had an opportunity to go um, race Fiat and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I got this uh, little trophy for being number two. <laughs> My guest today has been Matt Ray, Interim Superintendent of Omaha Public Schools. Matt, it's just been a delight chatting with you. Thank you. Same, same. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Fiat's. Fiat's. That's what I said. Well, yeah, that's not what I heard. Well, I think it was the context of where it came from. Like, what? You're asking about fiance. Yeah.